I'm Marcus Greatheart. And I'm David Ball. Welcome to the Addiction Practice Pod. This is a podcast of the BC Centre on Substance Use about approaches to substance use care and treatment. Recorded on the unceded traditional territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. The reach of this work touches all 198 First Nations in British Columbia. I'm a physician, social worker, advocate, and mentor specializing in addiction treatments, social justice in healthcare, and doctor-patient communication. And I'm a journalist with a decade of reporting on substance use, mental health, and public health policies. This is a podcast for healthcare providers focused on issues here in British Columbia. We'll hear from clinicians, policymakers, and people with lived experience on approaches to substance use care that work. Today's show is about urine drug testing, commonly used to help monitor substance use treatment, and it has an important role to play in informing treatment decisions. However, many people have experienced urine drug testing procedures that felt punitive. When used appropriately, there can be many benefits. For example, urine drug tests can help confirm baseline substance use, identify substances the person wasn't aware they were exposed to, confirm that the individual is taking the prescribed medication, validate self-reported use of substances, and evaluate treatment outcomes. That all sounds useful, but what are the limitations and concerns about using urine drug testing? Well, evidence is limited for the effectiveness of urine drug testing for individuals on opioid agonist treatment, or OAT, particularly when it comes to improving treatment retention and decreasing unregulated opioid use. Many people have had negative experiences such as having their treatment abruptly discontinued based on urine drug test results. And some people experience regularly having to provide urine samples is really invasive. These can all impact whether someone will continue to access care. Today, we're here to discuss some of the nuances around using urine drug testing in practice. And you can find the studies and resources we discuss in today's episode in our show notes. Today, we want to bring you both a clinician and patient perspective on urine drug testing. First, let's learn more about the clinical side of things. Tracy Day is a family nurse practitioner in Prince George, with 15 years of experience caring for patients with opioid use disorder. She's the clinical director of substance use and addictions at the Carrier Sakani Family Services, and she's also a clinical advisor for the Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions and Overdose Emergency Response Center. Hi, Tracy. It's so great to have you here today. Can you start by broadly describing the main types of urine drug tests? So basically, there's two different types of urine drug testing, like two different categories. There's the point of care testing that you would do at the clinic or the office, and they are the screening tests. So they're the ones that you get the immediate answers for. You would have the screening tests that you're looking for. If you're going to start or want to start on an opioid agonist therapy or prescribed safe supply, and you're going to go in for initial testing. So you would have an answer right away for those tests. But the problem is with those tests, sometimes they are going to give you answers that are false positives or false negatives. So they're not always reliable. 
And then, so then you go on to the second kind of testing, which are the mass spectrometry or the gas chromatography. And so those are the kinds of tests that have to be sent off to the laboratory. So they don't have immediate answers, but they have the, the kind of gold standard testing. And so they can tell you what exactly is in the urine and how much is in the urine. And those are really good tests for when we are able to say, like, what is in the toxic drug supply, or if the drugs you're taking are actually the drugs that you want to take. For our listeners who are not familiar with urine drug testing, can you explain the purpose of urine drug testing in the context of substance use care? It's very tricky because there's a lot of kind of controversy over urine drug testing. For example, when you're going to use it to initiate opioid agonist therapy or prescribe safe supply. We want to use that for safe practice when someone's um, prescribing, for example, and as a tool to have a complete, like, objective standard for the completeness of someone's encounter. So you have your subjective history, like you ask your patient, what are you using? How are you using it? How much are you using the trends? Like, when did you start using? So you have your whole subjective history. And then if you're able to have a personal, like face-to-face encounter with a person, you can like physically examine someone, like how do they look? Do they have any kind of signs of in, in, like track marks or injection, or if they want to do a urine sample, then you can assess that with a point of care dip, a test and those kinds of things. So that's just like one of the things that you can use. But like I said, you can have false positives or false negatives. So it's just one of the things. It goes in just as one of the tools. So it sounds like when you mentioned like being able to get an objective assessment, that would help guide the kinds of opioid agonist treatments or the levels that you're keeping people at to make sure you're adequately addressing their needs and their withdrawal risks. Is that right? Yeah, it's one of the tools for sure. Yeah, but there's also the other tools because we have to also believe people and what they're telling us. If when someone says they're using this much down or fentanyl or heroin, we should believe them and not rely on a false positive or a false negative in a urine drug screen. We should believe people when they tell us what works for them. Or we should go on things like when when folks tell us that increasing their methadone or increasing their cadian is what they need because they're using less street source illicit drug supply because that's what's going to work for them. If they're having increased contact with their family or those are all like the subjective data that are also important. Like we can't always go by what we can measure by just one urine drug test. It's not the thing you hang your hat on, but it's just this one extra thing because the real health benefits aren't decided by a urine drug screen. Those aren't the things that make people better. Like connection makes people better. Ongoing healthcare and engagement makes people better. Like being able to titrate and increase oat makes people better. Like being able to have increased healthcare and have HIV treatment or hepatitis C treatment added to their oath increases longevity and decreases drug-related harm. And they want to, I think that's very important for them to be able to do. 
There are multiple reasons why a urine drug test may show unexpected results. Can you walk us through why this might happen and how you'd approach a situation like this? So, like, when the urine drug test comes with unexpected results, the first thing is I would see if I made a mistake. Because I've done that before. It's been quite embarrassing. I've had to phone patients back and apologize, which I have no problem doing. You look at Pharmanet and then you look at the urine drug screen, but the urine actually wasn't until the next day and whatever. So we make mistakes with your dates and things like that. So I've had to apologize to patients. So there's that. Number one, I make sure, I try to make sure that I'm not the one making the mistake. And the second thing is I try to just ask the patient, like, what's happened here? I try to make it so it doesn't set the patient up for any failure. Like maybe asking leading questions that would set the patient up to maybe tell mistruth to me. Because I've seen that done in, in practice before, and I think it's quite unfair. And so I like to basically have the conversation about this is what I've seen in the urine and this is what the pharmacist says and I turn the screen around and I ask like how like how come this happened can you tell me more about it Ex- explain this to me instead of starting the conversation with have you been using anything else or tell me how this is how well this is working for you so uh, when you have other things that are going on I think like you don't have a you don't have a home you don't have financial security. You have a lot of other commitments in life, life that are oftentimes unpleasant. So I think when I have these conversations, I want to really understand what's going on that's extra on top of that causes stress. It sounds like what one thing I'm hearing is the really big importance of being really thoughtful and mindful of how you communicate. So what kind of questions you ask, how to not make someone feel stigmatized or accused in practice? Yeah, I feel like that's the most important thing. Like a lot of the folks that I encounter have had such a rough time with the healthcare system. They just really almost expect it from everyone in the healthcare system. And a lot of the interactions I have with people really, it, it can be really rough at first and take a long time to to warm up. So a lot of the interactions I have in the beginning are usually just very few minutes of an, like an encounter at first, and they end up being longer after a while. But sometimes the first few encounters I have with people for interactions for OAT appointments or addiction appointments are like very brief, a very few minutes. And it, like it takes a long time to build relationships. And, and I, like, these are probably the most valuable relationships that I've, I've ever built or with the folks that I cared for here in Prince George over these long years. I think it's very sad that they have such a terrible time having trusting and therapeutic relationships with care providers when they seek care for such a very complex and severe like illness that causes six people a day to die in BC and the care is fragmented and uncertain that they they can't access saving medication and they are just like like scared to do so. I'm wondering if you if you have clinicians who are listening who want to apply some of these things that you're talking about more effectively and more ethically in practice. I'm wondering what key suggestions you would have if they want to incorporate urine drug testing more effectively when they're taking a patient-centered approach? 
I always say the number one rule is to be nice to people. Like it's the golden rule, the thing you learn in kindergarten, basically to treat people the way you want to be treated. And the urine drug testing, is it really necessary? Will it change the clinical care? Is it going to change? Will it change the care plan? I'm frequently having conversations around like, let me understand what your health goals are, but also understand that there are some parameters, guidelines and regulations that I'm operating within. And so we need to come together to address those. You haven't had methadone in two months and you'd like to start back at 120 milligrams, but I just can't do that. So let's see how we can get you there in a safe way that that fits within those parameters that I'm allowed to prescribe within and helps you to meet your goal. Yeah, I, like people like options. I don't like to be told what to do. I like to have options. I like to know what my choices are. And I like to feel like I can fit that within my life and what I like to do. And I think that everyone probably feels that way. So what can I do to make and support people in their lives to have as many choices that they they can have to have the optimum health? Like. Where can I meet them so that we can be in this relationship where there's reciprocity? Because otherwise, it won't work. That was Tracy Day, family nurse practitioner and clinical director on substance use and addictions at Carrier Sakani Family Services. We also wanted to hear today from someone with lived experience of urine drug testing who could provide some critical insight for care providers. Raya Jean is Vice President of the BC Association of People on Opiate Maintenance. Raya is a peer navigator and harm reduction and drug policy reform advocate with lived experience of opioid agonist treatment and navigating the system. My name is Raya Jean. And I go by he and they pronouns. And I'm in Vancouver. I'm actually in the downtown east side. I've been living here for two years. So most of the work that I do is through BCA Palm. And that is how I have been connected to a lot of groups through BCA Palm. So that's the BC Association of People on Opiate Maintenance. I've been the vice president on that board for, I guess, almost three years now. And... And that's how I got hooked up with a lot of these other organizations like BCCSU and Health Now Healthcare Excellence Canada and the BC Patient Safety and Quality Council, or they just call it the council. One of the key areas that, that our group BCA Home is working on this year specifically um, campaigning for elimination of mandatory drug tests, okay? So we should not have to submit these new drug screens in order to get our medication, okay? Nobody else has to do this. When I had to do it, especially the first time, I found it humiliating. I don't know, like, when I was younger, I had this thing about washrooms where I never really wanted people to hear me peeing, like, in a public washroom, especially at high school or, <laughs> I don't know, I got over that. But for some reason, it's kind of triggered that or something because you'd have I would have to pick up I would have to pick up my cup at the counter in front of everybody else who's waiting there, and then walk it to the bathroom, and then walk out with it, put it on the counter where everybody can see it, and then the guy grabs it with his little tongs <laughs> in front of everybody in the reception area because this clinic that I was at at first was a private clinic, and then there's 
public primary care centers. I'm at one now, finally, in the downtown east side. Thank God, through, through Providence Health, which has totally changed the game for me. So it's like I have a GP, and she deals with all, all my medications, including my, my, my opiate-based treatment. Long-term patients had disabilities, physical disabilities, that I just remember disabilities that would get in the way of them even getting into this tiny washroom, right, to get a urine test. And they would insist that they do it. And I just remember watching this woman struggle in her wheelchair. And I was just like, this is bananas. Like this, and it's in front of everyone again. Why don't you have a wheelchair accessible washroom? And she kept saying, yeah, I haven't used it. I don't know, probably 20 years, but sure, if you insist. And of course, at this point, we had to do a urine test every month. And sometimes they would call you for a random, which I didn't know about when I first started working. And I was working at the time. So when they called me for a random, I was like, I'm at work. I can't just leave. And I, in fact, in order for me to even get to my appointment, I had to schedule these appointments. I had to find a doctor who worked on a Friday because at the time I had every second Friday off. So I was actually spending my day off at the Suboxone methadone clinic. And that was the way I could swing it. Because how else am I going to explain that to my employer? I have to be an appointment every month. And it would take up half the day because I didn't get my own appointment. No one did. We would line up. <laughs> and then they would take our name. And so then the doctor would arrive a half hour late. Inevitably, it's just creepy not to have your own appointment. It just feels so undignified and unprofessional. To me, the research isn't there to back that up. So if that's not there, why are we using it, right? We have to use it for a reason. Um, it's just because we want to penalize people because we don't want them to use drugs. I don't think that's a good enough reason, especially if you have to be completely 100% sober in order to get one, you know, one negative drug screen on your record, right? 100%. So this is actually setting very unrealistic expectations on people um, compared to others in society who don't, who don't actually have to. And it actually can be very harmful. So I'm talking, we talk about shame, right? We talked about shame, we talked about embarrassment, we talked about triggering high school memories, feeling like you're almost having to go pee in front of people. Who wants to do that? I do have somebody very close in my life who I have spent time helping him to navigate substance use services. And this is somebody who is not at all institutionalized, had been using opioids for five plus years, had been on methadone for 20, 20 years, and but had never been to treatment, had never been to detox, right? And so when we met, he started to consider those possibilities and I, I was happy to help him in whatever way I could and he was a person who was not comfortable asking for help so I was happy to help him in whatever way I could especially being on the board of BCA Palm and, and having the backup and the support of my group and having access to good research by the BCCSU and so I helped him get into a place a men's facility here in Vancouver and they wanted him to do a a close, I can only call it, a, I don't even know what to call it, but I called it a, a very close observed witness of him urinating. 
So basically standing right next to him, looking right down at him peeing, right, at his body as he is trying to pee into the cup. He never had to do this before. I never had to do that before. I can't imagine him. I've heard of people standing outside the door. I think, again, I would feel like they could hear me and I'd probably get triggered. Some people have to turn the faucet on, right? But no matter what, this guy, this supervisor, whoever is like, um, like it seems like, can you stand like outside the door? Like you can leave it open, but can you at least like, not, can you turn around even? You have to look right at me because I'm having a lot of trouble going. And I said, yes, we do. And just drink more water. It'll be fine. So then, of course, so he drinks water. So he's there all day until five o'clock. And at five o'clock they say, okay, We've been unable to successfully get a urine sample from you, and so therefore, we cannot admit you. Sorry. And I sent him home. And he was devastated. And he had been calling me, panicking, texting me all day what was going on, and I was just like, I didn't know what to do. I was blown away, and I felt so helpless. And he said he was drinking water until it hurt. It hurt. And he was getting this flack from these male, whoever they were, supervisors. And there's this kind of macho attitude of, what's wrong with you? Everybody else can do this. Why can't you do this? Just drink more water. What's wrong with you? Why can't you do this? I think he felt like a failure. And of course, we didn't know what to do because we mailed his plans and told him where he was going. And then he had to go back to, where, to a bad situation. So what we did is we, we definitely complained. They said to him, they said, even if we made a concession for you today, we do these kinds of absurd, close observed urine tests quite regularly. This wouldn't be the only time. You'd have to do this again and again. So if you can't do it, you can't be here. So you can't get better. You can't get treatment because you can't, because your body is so traumatized that it's locking up. And you physically can't go. And of course, they treat you like you're lying. Yeah, it was just the worst thing. It was like the worst story I'd ever heard. And do you think that really made him very keen to try again at someone else? Like, no, it didn't. It didn't make him want to try again very soon. <laughs> very soon at all. Because what if the same thing happens? Because then you're like, oh my God, now the same thing is gonna happen. And then that happens, right? Then it's like, you're expecting it. It's just a mess. When I got to my primary care clinic, I was surprised when I met my doctor, my fabulous doctor who sadly just had to leave. And I was surprised, I said to her, I said at the end of the appointment, I said, aren't you gonna ask me for a urine test? And she said, no. Asking, why not? I, <laughs> you're not going to ask me one every time I come here. I just never heard anybody talk like that before. So that was really strange to me and very relieved. And I could get my own appointment. I could book my own appointment. <laughs> and I didn't have to wait in line. Sometimes waiting outside. Can you imagine? That was Raya Jean, Vice President of the BC Association of People on Opioid Maintenance. Now that we've heard clinical and personal perspectives on urine drug testing, Marcus, what are some of your key takeaways and clinical pearls from this episode? A few things. A urine drug test should only be used when the result will inform clinical management. 
but it should not be the only factor considered when making treatment decisions. In the case of managing opioid agonist treatment, examples of appropriate use include confirming baseline opioid use, informing changes to treatment, or identifying substances a patient may not be aware they were exposed to. Clinicians should provide patient-centered care by being transparent with patients about the purposes of urine drug testing and discussing how results may impact their care. Clear expectations should be set and treatment plans and adjustments should be developed collaboratively with your patient. When unexpected urine drug test results occur, clinicians should discuss the results with their patients and determine how to adjust the treatment plan, prioritizing patient goals and safety. Punitive measures should not be taken. For example, discontinuing opioid agonist treatment due to a positive urine drug test for opioids or other substances. As a healthcare provider, it's important to recognize and acknowledge the power imbalances between a patient and their provider, especially in the context of substance use care and urine drug testing. Care providers must actively work to create safer spaces for patients to receive care without judgment and stigma. This involves building trust over time through compassionate care and open communication. Thank you so much to our guests today, Raya Jean and Tracy Day. The BC Centre on Substance Use has a breakout resource for urine drug testing in patients prescribed opioid agonist treatment published in 2021. We've included this resource and some relevant articles in our show notes. You can also find instructions there for claiming CME self-learning credits. This has been a production of the BC Centre on Substance Use. This program was made possible through a financial contribution from Doctors of BC, with support from BC's Ministry of Health and Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions, and founding support from Health Canada. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of those organizations. I'm Marcus Greatheart. And I'm David Ball. Thank you so much for listening.